Uh, we're talking this morning, I do want to introduce to you uh, this concept of the Common Life book. Uh, but honestly, more I'm going to be talking this morning about the why. Uh, you heard a little bit of the what uh, the Common Life book is, and we'll talk a little bit about that at the end. Um, but really want to talk about what the underpinning desires are uh, around this whole concept that has led this uh, team of people to get together. We're going to be in Psalm 23. Um, Psalm 23 was Psalm of David. And if you could meet me there, that would be awesome. On your way, I want to tell you about a girl in my neighborhood growing up named Connie Parisi. Connie Parisi was one of those human beings who knows everything about everything. And she'd let you know that by instructing you that you know nothing about nothing. So that when you come up against anything about anything, she could tell you everything about everything, which would reinforce nothing about nothing. And eventually, we realized that only Connie knew anything. So what happened was, is we were out in our yard, undoubtedly getting a new pontification from, Con from neighbor Connie about the ways of the world. And we were learning this. I was probably seven at the time. And um, a, a topic came up around this particular plant. Now, how many of you know about the evils of this plant, right? Okay. Some of you believe in the fall precisely because of this plant. You're like Genesis 3, yeah, sin came into the world, poison ivy, right? That's your evidence right there. Poison ivy is something very uncomfortable. I've heard there's people who are not allergic. I won't make you raise your hand because we hate you. So I'll just put you honest, like the rest of us have had to suffer through weed whacking, et cetera, and making mistakes with this plant right here. Well, Connie, who knows everything about everything, did not know much about poison ivy. So we said, Connie, don't go behind those bushes right by our living room window. Just be careful. We tell everyone because poison ivy grows back there. She says, that's not poison ivy. We say, yeah, we know this one. This might be all we know, but look, see all this? That's poison ivy. That's not poison ivy. Go back and forth. She marches behind those bushes, rips up those plants, tears them up all over the face, the arms with this look of spite of, I know so much more than you, all down the legs, and then eventually marched home saying, see? But the next day, <laughs> the next day she showed up like, like a pink Kirby from Mario Brothers, <laughs> covered in calamine lotion, swollen, and we had such pity on her as we rejoiced, <laughs> treasuring it like Mary in our hearts always, the day that Connie realized she did not know everything about everything. Some of the most um, poisonous things that I have ever heard uh, and have impacted my life uh, and faith negatively, I've heard in church. Some of the most poisonous things I've ever read and tried to apply to my life, I've read in Christian books. I fear that some of the most poisonous things I've ever said as a person, I've said um, while preaching, here or Collingswood or elsewhere, because there's something that tends to happen that's beautiful in a place of worship. It's that we want, to, we want so much to learn and grow that we can take little statements, right, and then, and then grab them and then rub them all over every aspect of our life and maybe over-apply them and uh, take them too far. 
I want to share with you one of those that um, was that for me, a, a well-intended quote that um, took me a direction that was not healthy for me. I heard this quote, it's by Henry Varley. Now, Henry Varley was leading a Bible study in London, and one of the people who came to the Bible study was D.L. Moody, who was a part of um, an incredible revival that happened both in England and in the Midwest, and a lot of wonderful things happened through his life, a truly wonderful man. Well, at, at this Bible study, apparently this man was speaking to the Bible study, and he said, he said, the world has yet to see what God will do with a life fully committed to him. The world has yet to see what God can do through a life fully devoted to him. And D.L. Moody went home, wrote in his journal or whatever, and he said, by faith, I will be that man. I believe Henry Varley intended that for good. I believe D.L. Moody probably applied and looked at that into his life all for good. But for me, how I heard this quote was this, the more over-the-top, passion-driven that I am in my surrender to God, the more he can finally do his spectacular and miraculous work in the world. As in like, I knew God was awesome and I read the miracles in the New Testament I, and what it meant to, to be in the presence of God and you're, you're laying down on your face and there's this awesome sense of awe and I read all of those stories and it's like God had all those and he was just waiting just waiting for one person fully committed to him enough, I 100% surrendered to him enough that finally that he would puncture that and that God would be able to then do his miraculous and spectacular work in the world. This was damaging for me. And we're going to look at a person who was a part of a geopolitical and spiritual revival in Israel that has some really profound words in Psalm 23. This man, David, is explosive, history-shaping, mighty warrior, country-reviving acts of massive breakthrough spiritually, and, 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 and you wonder what motivates and mobilizes this type of cloud-opening, world-changing faith. And we're going to read Psalm 23, which I, I believe is a foundation that is much a much healthier plant than uh, perhaps the one I was coming to in the understanding of Henry Varley's quote. I'm going to read Psalm 23. This is uh, written later in David's life, it's estimated, although it's earlier in the book. But after much of his life, this we hear the confession and prayer of this man. He says this, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley of the very shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Before we pray, I just want to make this statement. The more that I have accepted that my life is truly his, truly God's, 
the less I feel the need to be responsible for the spectacular and the extraordinary. The more I understand that the rhythm of God is not frantic, but slow and consistent and all around us. So this morning we are asking, how do we live out our faith in the common parts of our lives? Lord, we thank you for your scripture. Um, this psalm is, has been bouncing around in my soul for many months. I thank you for the invitation that we have to become a part of what you are doing. We thank you that you are the hero of the story. We thank you that your invitation is not for just those that are, uh, can, can arrive at some super spirituality, not, not just that we can configure our lives such that you would finally join us, but the reality that you're already here and we can be with you. Teach us to listen. Teach us to listen even to these words in Psalm 23. In Jesus' name, amen. A few thoughts for you this morning. First, most of life is lived commonly. Most of life is lived in the ordinary daily activities. David's life, as we mentioned, had a lot of spectacular things happen. And probably it was less common than yours or mine. But even his life had his own rhythms. In fact, the whole uh, David and Goliath story was happening because David was uh, carrying out an errand for his dad. His dad said, hey, um, your brothers, the mighty warriors, the ones who I thought would be chosen king, they're out on the battlefields with the Philistines. I want you to take some of this food and some of this stuff. Will you run this errand for me? Take it to them. David says, sure. And David's on this normal day taking a normal package to the people who are actually doing the extraordinary work. And on his way, he's like, who is that guy? Right? And he sees Goliath and he finds out about him, but he did not set off that day saying, this is the day I have prepared myself. I have waited on the calendar to finally have this heavyweight match between God and Goliath. No, he's running an errand and he says, oh, well, I, I know God can take that guy. And the story is about not how spectacular David is or how fast a rock can fly, but how good a God is that David had learned to trust in the ordinariness of his life. The scripture teaches simply in the fields, singing worship to God with the sheep, living out the daily life, living in communion with God, such that when he saw a, God, a giant, he said, he's not so big. Because he had learned the bigness of God throughout the dailiness of life. While we often, and we, we know this about David, right? Like when he's king, there's some extreme stories that happen, some good, some really not so good. And we learn this about David, but really in the life of David, a lot of it is waking up, dealing with today's threats and possibilities of the kingdom, going to sleep, waking up and doing it over again. Psalm that we have 83 different Psalms written by David. There are some very consistent themes, even though they're written throughout David's life, that he would face. He had rhythm to his life. He had normalness to his life. And though more extreme than maybe some of us experience, he still had to live out the majority of his life simply in day-to-day -day living. And while we often tell stories of when things are extreme, 
Most of our lives are lived in predictable dailiness. And this is not to belittle the tremendous trauma, the touch points of crisis, the great moments of uh, celebration that we have in our lives. But most of life is lived in dailiness. We have the ability in our modern times to count on some rhythms, right? Some normal rhythms. School starts on the East Coast day after Labor Day. Simon Cowell begins a new singing talent show every two to three years. Golden State Warriors add a new superstar to their roster every offseason. In October, the men, hopefully just the men, start growing the nativity beards. Every September, we start begging members to come to our annual meeting so we can have a quorum. And every Labor Day, you ask a guest preacher to preach because everyone else is away on vacation. There's things that we can kind of count on that happen rhythmically, normally. I, um, I'm a journal guy, so I, I write out my prayers to God, and that's been a helpful way for my communication with God, and I've kept a bunch of those, and I've got like a stack in my house of, of journals. And throughout the years, my, my vocabulary's gotten a little better, my penmanship somehow even worse, but the root system of the things that I have dealt with back to the age of like 16, the root system is very similar. A lot of the same insecurities. Do they look different? Sure. Do a lot of the same heart uh, idols. Do, do they look different, present different? Absolutely. A lot of the same fear that I have of circumstances. Now, are they new fears? Yeah, but they look like dressed up old ones. Life is lived in dailiness. Learning to know God is an activity that must take place in commonness and must not be relied on only in extreme moments. Dreyer says this uh, rather darkly. He says this, everydayness is my problem. It's easy to think about what you would do in wartime or if a hurricane blows through or if you spend a month in Paris or if your candidate wins the election or if you won the lottery or bought that thing you really wanted, it's a lot more difficult to figure out how you're going to get through today without despair. Secondly, with that commonness, the commonness that throughout history people have lived in and that's looked different to different people, but everyone's living in the same sense of everydayness. During the commonness of our lives, I, I want to argue that we can tend to preoccupy our minds with three things. Now, there's way more than three things we can preoccupy our minds with. But I just want to give you these three. And this is because learning from my own crazy brain and then also learning and talking with people and understanding what it means to be an East Coaster, I want to present an idea that there are three things that are very easy to dominate our thinking. So during daily activities, during normal things of life, we fill our minds with these things, can tend to fill our minds with these things. First, accumulation. The gaining of that which I feel I need to be happy and secure. The amount that I need to gather in my bank account. The, the things I need to get on my resume. The tests I need to get. The, the grades I need to get on, on my tests in order to get into this school. The, the life experience that I need to achieve or the fun things I need to do. My desired family structure. What's next to get me there? The place I have always wanted. The place where finally I'm at happiness and security. How can I accumulate that? Secondly, I think our, our minds can go to this fear, anxiety. 
that which could go wrong and make everything unravel. Um, I had a, a group of um, young adults, we were in a community group, and I asked this question, this is the question, what are most of your subconscious thoughts about? You can imagine, they just love being in my community group, like, dude, what are most of your subconscious thoughts about? Like, as you're driving and nothing else is really going on in your mind, what, what starts spinning? What's there? Because that can show, like, what we're, what we're consumed with, right? Every single one of us, me included, was, at least at that point, in here. We were afraid, afraid of, of, of what if our life didn't turn out this way, afraid of, if, if we didn't get married, afraid of, of not arriving at this type of career, afraid we wouldn't buy that house we wanted, afraid we'd never climb out of debt, afraid, afraid, afraid that when, when all of life got still enough around us, what we returned to was a slow, low churning of our fear. Third, conflict. The people in my life that don't like me, wish me ill, or I can't seem to get along with, we can very easily be preoccupied with the hurting relationships in our life. This is why bitterness can be such a big thing. That's why people-pleasing can be such a big thing, because we can think through, how do I get this person to like me, or why does that person like this? And the areas of where we sense and feel conflict can be the things that are consuming our mind. All three of these are majoritively future-related. How do I get there? How do I stop this bad thing from happening? How do I fix this relational problem. These things are, uh, are things that we, uh, they're how we impress each other. I'd also put a slash in there if you're following on the notes. It's how we impress each other slash determine our happiness. And not always, but, but oftentimes when we're talking with people or slip into like a bragging category or, or talking about like a gossiping category or something. We, we kind of want to get a good story out there. We slip into stories that revolve around these things. Um, we also do this in our minds to think of how will happiness be achieved. And usually we're working these things in our minds to stack in such a way that happiness can be desirable, that we can achieve it if we accumulate enough can get past all the things we're afraid of and get everyone to like us or be at peace with us. Secondly, it's how we entertain ourselves. I mean, that's, that's, I, I think that there's a lot of this in the things that we fill our entertainment with. Uh, 94, I listen to sports talk radio, 94.1. Like, they always have different um, uh, taglines that they're trying to push, and recently they had this one, 94.1, drama guaranteed. And I'm like, is this a Kardashian show? Like, I, I want to hear about the Phillies. No, I don't really care about the Phillies. But I want to hear about the Phillies. But the, in, in, this, uh, in this show, even this sports culture, they're like, they'll do taglines like, and this coach is arguing with this player, and will Embiid ever get past his injury bug? And this fear could make the team tank this way. And, uh, and they do this to stir you up so that you will keep listening because we are interested by this, we are entertained by stories of accumulation, by stories of conflict, by stories based on fear. Reality TV shows since 2000 has skyrocketed. Much of the initial skyrocketing of that was because we learned that, that, that people, the producers learned that we like to watch people fight on TV. And that's how they pick a lot of the people. And some of the, it's, it's, it's something we 
are interested in. And a lot of our movies, etc., books we read are based on the interpersonal conflict and how that is worked out. I was looking this morning just on my phone for fun at news websites. And just how, because they call it clickbait, right? How do you, how do you get that interest? And if uh, you wonder if these things are current in our mind, just go through yahoo.com and scroll through all of their headlines right now. It's like, how could Ivanka do this at this funeral? How could they say this about that person? This person just got $400,000, da, 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 da. Then there's an ad for like, you can learn Spanish in 21 hours or something. Like, all of these things are, and they're, and they're interesting. And as I was looking at them, I'm like, ha, ha, I'm preaching a sermon on this. I can see their tactics. And I'm like, oh, what did Ivanka say? You know, like, <laughs> it's interesting, right? It's how we can entertain ourselves. It's, it's exciting to hear about, and this is what we all say, we say, oh, I hate drama. I hate drama. You hate being involved in drama. Most of us like to hear about drama, right? Hear about how you're involved in it, but this is also how we buy and sell things, right? Um, there's a show, Luke Cage, it's on Netflix. Mariah is this uh, politician, and then she's talking to this mob boss. I don't remember his name. It was something cool and mob bossy, but they're talking back and forth, and she's saying, I I'm a politician, and she's a councilwoman, and, and he's like, the mob boss of this said, listen, I'm a gangster, mob boss, whatever I am. He says, you're a politician, but we're both in the business of selling fear, of selling fear. It is how we buy and sell things, because if I can promise to solve your fears, I will be your king, and you will buy anything from me. Advertisers spend trillions of dollars spent online, TV commercials, billboards. We are the most advertised group of human beings in the history of the world based on the many mediums that we can get advertised to. And all the advertisements are coming down. You can watch your commercials with these things in mind. They're coming down to saying, if you eat my Doritos, if you buy my insurance, if you get this statement car, if you take this magic pill, you will be healthy, you will get that girl or guy that you've always been wanting, always wanted, you will be rich, and you will finally have nothing to fear. Over and over and over, we hear this message. Neil Postman says this, and amusing ourselves to death, he says this, what the advertiser needs to know is not what is right about the product, but what is wrong about the buyer. Because for for some of us, and I, maybe it's harsh, it's not our only default way of thinking, but often our default way of thinking goes towards these things. Uh, our, we don't live in just mental nothingness. We, if we're doing something that doesn't cause a lot of mental energy, we tend to float these ways. And the reasons why advertisers and politicians and et cetera, leaders are selling this is because we are buying and accumulation when I live my life with filling my mind with accumulation, I live my life chasing, I find it hard to be present or content. Fear, when I live my life in anxiety and fear, I live my life stressed with that which might go wrong. I find it hard for my mind and soul to rest. Conflict, when I live my life giving my greatest relational mental energy to the most dramatic relational needs, 
then I find it hard to trust in my relationships and build long-term safety because I'm worried and aware of the energy of conflict at work, conflict at home, conflict amongst the ones that I love. And these things then breed fear and cycles go from there. Third, and this is what... Um, this is what a big impetus for us doing this book project, this. Our relationship with God can tend to rely on these things, too. Um, if you look at these, I had a chance to look through the 83 Psalms that David wrote. And, and David wrote um, a lot about these things. Fear, anxiety, conflict, accumulation. Again, David was part of a geopolitical revival that was incredible for Israel. Um, all these things are present in how he prays. And I believe initially the way we learn to trust God is through these difficult felt needs. It's through, it's through a difficult hard divorce. It's through a, a very painful interpersonal conflict. It's through going into a debt that you can't climb out of. It's through going into um, an addiction that you can't seem to fix that you're trying to get better and better but you can't quite get there. It's through those needs that often we learn the end of ourselves, and that's where we can see the beginning of God. And as we, those are beautiful things that through those, those things that make us anxious, desire to accumulate and conflict, we do pray for those things. David prayed for those things. However, if this, our steady diet of our connection with God is about our felt needs, we are living a circumstance-centered faith, not a Jesus-centered faith. This is how I know it can happen and when it happens in my life. My prayer life is not about what I believe to be true. It's about what I'm afraid of. My searching the scripture is not about what is lastingly true, but what can instruct me in my present jam. My preoccupation with people is not asking how can I simply love but how I can find peace and perhaps have a better image in the midst of people who may not like me or who I feel conflict with. Over time, if my circumstances are always what I rely on to drive me to God, they become the center of my faith. And, and, and the greatest temptation to nodding, wanting God for God's sake, or what did C.S. Lewis say? He said, I've come to learn I want to know God as he is, not as I want him to be. I think the greatest thing that, that keeps us from, from entering a faith of looking for the presence of God in just everywhere is this idea of greed. To be centered so on my circumstances, not communion, it's greed. The great temptation to not live the humble life of complete worship is that greed. We want something better. We want something now. We want ourselves, our teams, our churches, our families to accomplish and arrive at the top, most important, most growing. A Christ-centered love says, I have, life says, I accept what I am given. I accept even my limitations. I choose to actually believe what Jesus said, that apart from me, you can do nothing. Whether this calls us ego high or ego low, we live to receive from Jesus and continually confess that he, he is enough for us. The life transformation happens in many different ways, but I, I really believe the way that God takes the most ground in our lives is that we learn to see his presence in the ordinary places in our lives, not just those great moments but that we learn to see God in the dailiness of life. In this text, we listen to a man 
with a deep faith who lived all kinds of exciting adventures. But David says, lead me in quiet ways. Lay me down by green pastures. Lead me beside streams of living water. And though I go through valleys of death all around me, though my table is populated with people who are my enemies and wish me harm, all things can be traversed as long as they're traversed with you. This is why I believe that um, our faith should strive for contentment as much as passion. We are creatively called to God's presence in every situation, whether it seems fanciful or not. He is present in our clumsiness, in our triggers, in our busyness of life. Transformation happens by learning to experience God at softer practice, caught in traffic, or after a silly argument with a spouse or roommate. And lastly this, questions like, are you quiet in your soul with God? I believe is more important than asking, are you on fire for God? And, and let me tell you why. I'm a more fired up person. Like, I'm, I'm jazzed. Like, I, I, my brain thinks really fast, which doesn't mean I think smart. It means I think dumb really quickly. Like, but I, I'm, a, I'm a go. I'm a passion person. Like, that's something that's inside of me. But there's something that I've noticed as uh, I've received at different times calls towards more passion, more passion. I, I, I've received them sometimes about how can I be more passionate? How can I arrive at this certain spiritual place? How can I do this, this? And the sneaky thing with passion is that it's really easy to connect pride to. Really easy. But it's really hard to be quiet, truly quiet in your soul with God and have things be all right other places. Like, I mean, have things, like, you can't externally determine your internal peace with God. That's something that happens through a daily practice. It's through learning his rhythm. This is going to sound kind of hippie, which I apologize. But like I said, I'm, I'm a fast guy. Like, um, but I notice when I, like, take time to really pray, and there's a difference between praying, you know, bless this food, blah, 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 get me out of this jam, that kind of thing, or right before bed, and then like sinking deep into prayer where we're trying to listen, where we're experiencing silence, where we're carving out time. But when I really spend time to like be in God's presence, my heartbeat slows down, which is weird. But it's like physically I can feel myself all of a sudden like going down coming to a different rhythm, connecting to something uh, more significant than myself. And my own relationship with God has largely been built by living on the surface and seeing the next wave come at my face and, oh my goodness, what am I going to do? And if that wave's there, how big's the wave after that? And while I'm looking at that wave, am I going to get run over by a boat here? Like worrying about circumstances and then, God, please help me. I don't know how to figure this out. I feel like I'm drowning. But the more I understand of God, the more I understand like this whole wave game, it's already losing. That the more, the more that I can sink deeper into the currents of God that don't change, that are not scared, that are not based on yesterday or tomorrow, 
the more that I can recognize that it's that which I truly need. It's that to which I truly long for. And it is that an effort that we wrote this book. Tim Chalice says this, your life was meant to be ordinary and not radical. And, and to give context to that, he says this, I've got a feeling that people who do the most for God are those who are most content to be ordinary. Some of them remain unknown and unnoticed their entire lives, others elevated and admired. But I suspect the ones we love the most are the ones that can be satisfied with either a profile or invisibility with much or little, whatever God gives. And Charlie says, there's beauty in that. I want that. But how, right? How do we slow down in a world that's all about keeping up? How do I become content with less when I live in a place that's very concerned with growth, change, fulfilling all dreams? How do I deal with even maybe times of getting more things without those things getting more of me? How do I live that my gaze is steadfast on Jesus and not fixated on my every conflict, every fear, every slight against my ego? How do I live a life that's lived ordinarily, daily, consistently planted in believing that God is actually here? Not a life that convinces God to come, but a life that actually believes God is here and I'm looking and spending and listening with my life to him. Three things I believe that are in this text. Very quickly, it says this, verse one, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I shall not want. If, if, if there's anything I'm good at, it's wanting. Right? I mean, I want stuff. Like, I, I, I have a whole list of things I could give you that I, I still, some part of me believes that if I got that list all checked out, I would, wouldn't want anything else. That's everything that I want. But here is David, in the midst of talking about enemies and all these other things, and you know his life is lived in complete tumultuousness. He says, but if the Lord is my shepherd, I don't have another one. And he's not saying that he's not a person who doesn't want anything. He's saying that he's learned that the Lord is my shepherd is enough. That, that the other stuff is, does not compare to the reality of living a with God life. That life with God is better than without him and with everything else. This means a daily confrontation of idols. Because you and I, we are brilliant stackers of idols and stackers of things that, man, we want this and how do we accumulate and get there and all these things and how do we arrive at these places in our lives and we want to do it, I want to do it. But what happens deep inside of me is these wants are what I worship. These wants are what I think about. These wants are what I obsess over. These wants are what I fear losing and, and the confrontation of idols is the saying, God, get me out of that. Get me out of that thinking. I heard a guy, uh, Craig Babb, who's um, one of my spiritual teachers, just an amazing man. And he talks about the spiritual practices. And uh, he talks about the, the importance of, of how our prayer life is and our, in the word is. And, and he one time talked about the importance of tithing. And, you know, tithing is kind of old school, right? 
who tithes anymore. No, I'm just kidding. But tithing is not like a word that I uh, expected. I thought we were talking more about prayer and these things. And he said this. He said, Ben, money is never neutral. Well, I was in a class. I wasn't that cool to just get directly. But he said, money is never neutral. He said, so much of what all of us are chasing for our satisfactions has its roots in money. And there's something about giving away 10% that can break its power. That's so good. Because why? Not because you be a good Christian, you accomplish this by you giving that much money. No, it's, it's a thing of, of this is, can be my idol and I can tend to rely on my security of this and that to peel myself off of this with giving away is a confrontation of me and therefore a, a reliance to learn that the Lord actually can shepherd. Secondly, I shall not fear. It says, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, though I see the imprints of death all around me, I will fear no evil. This is not because David knew how God would get him out of those fears, get him out of those death's shadows. But he says this, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. It is in his presence alone. Uh, a practice for this is to fix our eyes on Jesus slowly. Um, I, I, if, if you're like a read the Bible in one year person, that is really, really cool. But alongside of that, what I would say is like take one passage this year and read it every day. Like every day. I'm going to get so bored by that thing. It's so important to slow down. To, to get out of some of the, the other things that consume our minds, to truly rest and meditate and to look at Jesus slowly, to not approach him like just another task to get done, but to be to allow the rhythm of your soul to connect to a God that's not scared, who's not worried about tomorrow, who's not caught up in all of these things, who honestly takes things a lot less seriously than you, and he takes things that you might be considering trite a lot more seriously. So get to look steadily in the eyes of Christ by spending time with him that his rhythm, his movement might dominate, not just the next crashing wave of circumstance. I mentioned that David wrote 83 Psalms, 83 Psalms, and he talks all about like enemy stuff and like like king, like stuff happening in Israel stuff and all kinds of like his own problem stuff, his own fears, his own doubts, his own anger, his own confusion. But I believe it was in every single psalm, all 83, I looked at the end. And he did, he, what he did is he went from the tumultuousness of the waves and he went right to the character of God. Every single time that I saw was, yes, all this exists, but where I want to be planted deep deep within me is knowing that God is here and among and faithful and operates on a much less frenetic pace than I do. And lastly, and according with that, is I shall dwell, looking for him in the commonness of today. So this book, is we're calling it the Common Life Book, and uh, well, I don't know, what would you call it, book or pamphlet? What do you think? Let's call it pamphlet if you think it's going to be really good. So then we'll kind of undersell it, all right? Common life pamphlet. But if you won't read it unless we call it a book, this is the common life book. Um, 
But we put this together in effort to, to recognize that, that we're going in through the series in Romans, and we're all coming together, right, in services here and in Collingswood to look at this, this passage of Scripture. And then we're going out and doing our thing and doing our, the various sports and activities and school and all the kinds of things that people are doing all the time. And, but we don't have always a chance to gather back. So we thought, what if we had a chance to celebrate this in our homes, but in that way, while I'm doing that with my family, you're doing that with your family, or you're doing that with your roommate, or you're doing that by yourself, and that we're together while apart, that we're sharing this common life of God while even being separate from one another. And the book is designed to really uh, take a few minutes. Probably the activities could take you from 10 to 20 minutes, depending on how much time you came. They always start with a simple question, one for kids, one for adults. Would love for you to answer both, regardless of age. And the simple question is a chance to just stop, all of a sudden open up, look heart deep. What's going on in my day? Yeah, what, where was God in my day that I might not have seen him? What what's happens in my heart that I'm always, what am I always thinking about? And these questions of just trying to get us to stop and spend some time and then go to Scripture. We, we've done this, so the Scripture is uh, Old Testament Scripture, Psalms and Proverbs, the Gospels, and then New Testament, all according to shaping around the passage that we have in Romans that we're studying together as a faith family, so that we're demonstrating that these are not just little nuggets of truth Apostle Paul is, is throwing out, but we're looking at what God has done in his story for people of all time in all places and how this truth has been built throughout the story and narrative of Scripture and even talking about what God is doing amongst us now alongside of that. There's also like a spiritual practice in there which might be listening to a song uh, on, a, on a computer, a YouTube link that you'd go to. And I know it's going to happen to you and to me because we're encouraging you to do that five days a week, which may mean you get to it two or three days. But you're going to be like, on day three, like, I heard this song. I already know these lyrics. But then... Take that moment to say, what haven't I heard? What haven't I seen? What needs to slow down inside of me? Sometimes it's a prayer that we encourage you to pray five days, if you can. Um, and there's a blessing at the end where uh, you can pass around allow different people to bless one another, whether you do it with your spouse, again, whether you do it with yourself, whatever uh, is the case. But we're developing this because we want, we, we so believe in... Um, dealing with where people are, right, where we are. Like, so, so we do things for marriage, and we do things for finances, and we do things for, for youth, and we do things, right? We, we spend lots of energy on this, and it's good, and it should be, trying to, to uh, make the ancient truths of God relevant to the life stages that we're in. Super important. But we also notice it's really important to not just be taking God into our life situations but in the middle of our life situations, to just go and be with God. And that we could do that together and in common during the week, multi-generationally, uh, was a very exciting idea. And people put a lot of work into this. Really, really grateful for it. You're going to get it next week. Uh, you'll be able to see it at the ministry fair. And the week after, we'll have tons of copies uh, for you. Um, and really, it is an effort to slow down. It's an effort to, in the midst of everything else, take time to breathe, take time to settle, and take time to rest 
into a God who speaks love. One more story, sorry. We, uh, at this um, re retreat thing, the Craig Babb thing, um, in, on the West Coast, they had us go pray for four hours. Now, some of you are like, praise the Lord, I do that all the time. Others of you are like, hours? Like, I run out of things to say, which I learned is kind of the point. And so they encourage you to, like, spend time in silence. And they also encourage you, don't do too much music or don't do too much reading books. Like, really be in silence. And I'm telling you, four hours is longer than you think when you start, four hours. But, like, in, so it's part of our activity. And we go and, and just go and spend time listening to God. Talks, great. Doesn't talk, great. It's his choice. But just go and giving that intentional time of listening. And came back in with just an incredible group of people, this amazing group of people. And uh, I got out my pen and I just like was wondering what people would say after their experience. And, and simply Craig Babb asked the question, said, what did God say to you? Did God say anything to you? And then we just talked about what we believe that God might be showing us or teaching us or saying or revealing. And uh, I, I just started writing down words that people said. Wouldn't you know it? The closer any one of us in that moment drew to God, the less other stuff we wanted, the more like we realized he is this good. He is not a part of my life. He is my very life. And as, as I just heard words of, of love and support and even things of repentance, but they're not repentance and like I'm so terrible and life is so hard, I got to do better. It's repentance of saying like, oh, so good to get that off because, because I'm getting, I can see him more clearly. And the more clearly I can see him, I can say, well, this is my shepherd. What do I have to fear? This is my shepherd. I don't know what else I need to want because the more I understand the depth of God's love, the more I look for it, I realize that I'm not going to create it by behaving such a way. But maybe, just maybe, I can listen because his power of love is already here and his desire to be with me is already now. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. I will dwell in the house of God forever. Lord, I wish that my life was a better example of that which I preach. I wish my mind... I wish I could give testimony that, that I am a person without anxiety, without feelings that if I accumulate more, I'll, I'll, or when I accumulate more, I'll be happy. That I wasn't a person who just gets so wrapped up and people don't like me or um, are upset with me. But I am. And I believe that even as we gather here this morning, our minds drifts to the very things that we know won't ultimately satisfy. And this is why we thank you that it's your kindness that draws us in. And I pray even as we do a book and we do like a daily thing, that this would not be used as a, as a tool to beat people over the head or to check up on people, but just as a way of simple invitation of how we are learning together to see you everywhere. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. 
Though I walk through the valley of death, I will fear no evil. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days. I will dwell in the house of God forever. Make this God our common life. In the name of Jesus, amen. Thank you. Have a great Labor Day, everybody.